On the 15th of October, 1777, Sir William Howe was pleased to appoint Captain Simcoe of the Grenadiers with the provincial rank of Major to the command of the Queen's Rangers. The next day he joined the regiment, which was encamped with the army in the vicinity of Germantown. On the 19th, the army marched to Philadelphia. The Queen's Rangers formed the rear guard of the left column and, in the encampment, their post was on the right of the line in front of the village of Kensington, the army extending from the Delaware to the Shoekill. On the 20th, the regiment was augmented with nearly 100 men, who had been enlisted by Captain Smythe during the various marches from the landing army in the Chesapeake to this period. This was a very seasonable recruit to the regiment. It had suffered materially in the action at Brandywine, and was too much reduced in numbers to be of any efficient service, But if the loss of a great number of gallant officers and soldiers had been severely felt, the impression which that action had left upon their minds was that of the highest advantage to the regiment. Officers and soldiers became known to each other. They had been engaged in a more serious manner and with greater disadvantages than they were likely again to meet within the common chance of war. And having extricated themselves most gallantly from such a situation, they felt themselves invincible. The spirit vibrated among them at the time that Major Simcoe joined them, and it was obvious that he had nothing to do but to cherish and preserve it. Sir William Howe, in consequence of the behavior of Brandywine, had promised that all promotions should go in the regiment, and accordingly they now took their place. They now took place. The Queen's Rangers had originally been raised in Connecticut, in the, vic- in the vicinity of New York by Colonel Rogers, for the duties which their name implies and which were detailed in his commission. At one period, they mustered about 400 men, all Americans and all Loyalists. Hardships and neglect had much reduced their numbers. When the command of them was given to Colonel French, and afterwards to Major Wymus, to whom Major Simcoe succeeded, their officers had also undergone a material change. Many a gentleman of the southern colonies who had joined Lord Dunmore and distinguished themselves under his orders were appointed to supersede those who were not thought to competent to the commissions they had hitherto borne. To these were added some volunteers from the army, the whole consisting of young men, active, full of love of the service, emulous to distinguish themselves in it, and looking forward to obtain, through their actions, the honor of being enrolled with the British army. The provincial corps, now forming, were raised on the supposed influence with which their officers had among their loyal countrymen, and were understood to be Native American loyalists added to an equal chance among these. A greater resource was open to the Queen's Rangers, and the exclusive privilege of enlisting old countrymen, as Europeans were termed in America, and deserters from the rebel army. So that could the officers to whom the commander-in-chief delegated the inspection of the provincial corps had ex- have executed their orders, the Queen's Rangers, however dangerously and incessantly employed, would never have been in want of recruits. At the same time, the original loyalists, and those of this description, who were from time to time enlisted, forming the gross of the corps, were the sources from whence it derived its value and its discipline. They were men who had already been exiled for their attachment to the British government, and who now acted upon the firmest principles in its defense. On the contrary, the people they had to oppose, however characterized by the enemies of Great Britain, had never been considered by them as engaged in an honorable cause, or fighting for the freedom of their country. They estimated them not by their words, but by an intimate observance of their actions, and to civil desecration, 
Experience had taught them to add military contempt. Such was the composition of the Queen's Rangers and the spirit that animated it. The junction of Captain Smythe's company augmented the regiment into eleven companies, the number of which was equalized, and the eleventh was formed of Highlanders. Several of those brave men, who had been defeated in an attempt to join the Army of North Carolina, were now in the Corps. To those others were added, and the command was given to Captain McKay. They were furnished with the Highland dress and their national piper, and were posted on the left flank of the regiment, which congested of eight battalions, a grenadier, and a light infantry company. Upon the march from Germantown to Kensington, Sir William Erskine, in directing what duties Major Simcoe should do, had told him to call upon him for dragoons whenever he wanted them. Upon this, Major Simcoe took the liberty of observing that the clothing and habiliments of the dragoons were so different from those of the Queen's Rangers, the one being red and with white belts easily seen at the distance, and the other being green and accoutred for concealment that he thought it would be more useful to mount a dozen soldiers of, of the regiment. Sir William Erskine highly approved of the idea, and sent a suitable number of horses, saddles, and swords. Such men were selected for the service as the officers recommended for spirit and presence of mind. They were put under the direction of Kelly, a sergeant of distinguished gallantry. A light corps, augmented as that of the Queen's Rangers was, and employed on the duties of an outpost, had no opportunity of being instructed in the general discipline of the army nor indeed was it very necessary. The most important duties, those of vigilance, activity, and patience of fatigue, were best learnt in the field. A few motions of the manual exercise were thought sufficient. They were carefully instructed in those of firing, but above all, attention was paid to inculcate the use of the bayonet, and a total reliance on that weapon. The divisions being fully officered and weak in numbers was of the greatest utility, and in many trying situations was the preservation of the corps. Two files in the center, and two on each flank, were directed to be composed of trained soldiers, without regard to their size or appearance. It was explained that no rotation, except in ordinary duties, should take place among light troops, but that those officers would be selected for any service who appeared to be most capable of executing it. It was also enforced by example that no service was to be measured by the numbers employed on it, but by its own importance, and that five men, in critical situations or employment, was a more honorable command than a hundred on common duties. Sergeants' guards were in a matter abolished, a circumstance to which, in a great measure, may be attributed that no sentinel or guard of the Queen's Rangers was ever surprised, the vigilance of a gentleman and an officer being transcendentally superior to that of any non-commissioned officer whatsoever and attention to the interior economy of a company, indispensable as it is, by no means forms the most pleasing military duty upon service, where the officer looks up to something more essentially useful and values himself upon its execution. A young corps raised in the midst of active service, and without the habits of discipline which are learned in time of peace, required the strictest attention to this point. It was observed that regularity in messing and cleanliness in every respect conducted to the health of this conduced to the health of the soldier and from the numbers that each regiment brought into the field superior officers would in general form the best estimate of the attention of a corps to its interior economy and to enforce the performance of these duties in the strongest manner it was declared in public orders that to such only when in the field the commanding officer would entrust the duties of it who should execute with spirit what belongs to the interior economy of the regiment when in quarters to avoid written orders as much as possible, after the morning parade, 
The officers attended, as a German custom is, and received verbally whatever could be so delivered to them, that they were declared answerable that every written order was read to the men on their separate parades. Near the end of October, the Queen's Rangers were directed to patrol beyond Frankfurt, four miles from Philadelphia. It was the day that Colonel Donop made his unfortunate attempt on the Red Bank, and they advanced as far as the Red Line, which several of the rebel officers had left a few minutes before. The country in front of Philadelphia, where the Queen's Rangers were employed, was in general cleared ground, but intersecting with many woods. The fields were fenced out with a very high railing. The main road led straight from Philadelphia to Bristol Ferry on the Delaware, about five miles from Philadelphia. On this road was Frankfurt Creek, which fell into the Delaware nearly at that distance, and the angle that it formed was called Point No Point, within which there were many good houses and plantations. Beyond the bridge over the creek, on a height, was the village of Frankfurt. Below the bridge it was not fordable, but it was easily passed in many places above it. The rebels frequently patrolled as far as Frankfurt, and to a place called the Rocks, but a mile beyond it. Four miles farther was Pennypack Creek, over which was a bridge, and three miles beyond this was the Red Lion Tavern, and two miles further was Bristol, a small town opposite Burlington. This road was the nearest to the River Delaware. Nearly parallel to it was the road to York, which was attended by light infantry and of guards and the army, and there were many crossroads that intersected the country between these main roads, a most perfect knowledge of which was endeavored to be acquired by maps, drawn from the information of the country people and by ocular observation. The village of Kensington was several times attacked by the rebel patrolling parties. They would come by means of the woods very near to it, undiscovered. There was a road over a small creek to Point No Point. To defend this, a house was made musket-proof, and the bridge taken up, and cavalry only approached to this point, post, for it lying, as has been mentioned, in an angle between the Delaware and the Frankfurt Road. Infantry were liable to be cut off, and on the left there was a knoll that overlooked the country. This was the post of the picket in the daytime, but cornfields high enough to conceal the approach of an enemy reached to its bases. Sentinels from Hanson Klein to the left and joined those of Colonel Twistleton's, now Lord Say and Seeley, light, inf light infantry of the guards, so that this hill projected forward, and on that account was ordered by Sir William Eskern not to be defended if attacked in force, and it was withdrawn at night. It was usual, if the enemy approached, to quit this post till such time as the corps could get under arms, and the light infantry of the guards were informed of it, when, marching up the road, the enemy fearing to be shut up within the creek that has been mentioned, abandoned their ground and generally suffered in their retreat to the woods. At night, the corps was drawn back to those houses nearer to Philadelphia, and guards were placed behind the breastworks, made by heaping up the fences and such points as commanded the avenues to the village, which was laid out and enclosed in right angles. These were themselves overlooked by others that constituted the alarm posts of different companies. Fires also were made in particular places before the picket, to discover whatsoever should approach. Before the day of the whole corps was under arms, and remained so till the pickets returned to their day post, which they resumed, taking every precaution against ambuscades, the light infantry of the guards advanced their pickets at the same time, and Colonel Twistleton was an admirable pattern for attention and spirit to all who served with him. 
He constantly patrol. He he was constantly with the pickets, which generally found out the enemy's patrols and interchanged shot with them. His horse was one morning wounded by a rifle shot. The mounted men of the Queen's Rangers were found very serviceable on these occasions. The woods in front were every day diminishing, being cut down for the uses of the army, and the enemy kept a greater distance. An attempt was made to surprise the rebel post at Frankfurt. By orders from headquarters to the Queen's Rangers were to march near the bridge at Frankfurt and to lay there in ambush until such a time that Major Gwynne, who made a circuit with a detachment of cavalry, should fall into the rear of the town. Accordingly, the corps marched through bypaths and attained its position. Some dragoons at the appointed time passed the bridge from Frankfurt. The light was not sufficient to enable the rangers to discover whether they were friends or enemies, till upon turning their back and hearing a shot, the corps rushed into the town, Unfortunately, either by accident or from information, the rebel post had been withdrawn. Some days after the Queen's Rangers, with 30 dragoons of the 16th under Lieutenant Pidcock, marched at midnight to attempt the same post after making a circuit, nearly attaining the rear of the Jolly Post, the public house where the guard was kept, the party fell in with the patrol. This was cut off from the house. Luckily, it did not fire, but ran toward the woods. The detachment was carefully prevented from firing. No time was lost in pursuit of the enemy, but the infantry crossed the fields immediately in the rear of the house, and a disposition was formed for attacking it, in case, as it might well have been, it should be defended. The cavalry made a circuit to the road in the rear, and the post was completely surprised. An officer and twenty men were taken prisoners, two or three of whom were slightly wounded in an attempt to escape. They were militia, and what is very remarkable, they had the word Richmond chalked in their hats. The officer said Richmond was the countersign, and that he chalked it there that his men not, might not forget it. Sergeant Kelly dismounted an officer, and in pursuit of another man left him. The officer gave his watch to another dragoon. It was, however, a judge to the sergeant, as he was the person who dismounted him, spared his life, and pursued his duty. It is not improper here to observe that formerly Major Simcoe had forbidden the soldiers to take watches, and indeed did so after this, till he accidentally overheard a man say it was not worthwhile to bring in a prisoner. He therefore made it a rule that anyone who took a prisoner, if he publicly declared that he had his watch, should keep it, so that no soldier was interested to kill any man. The spirit of taking as many prisoners as possible was most earnestly attempted to be inculcated, and not without success. Soon after, as a strong patrol of cavalry under Major Gwynne was out, some of its men returned in great confusion, saying that they were attacked by a superior body both in front and rear, and at the same time Colonel Twistleton and Major Simcoe, who were on the knoll, occupied by the picket of the rangers, could perceive by the glittering of arms a large body of foot in the woods, near where Major Gwynne was to return, and they immediately took their respective pickets, about twenty men, and marched to mask the woods. The soldiers in camp were ordered to run to the knoll, without waiting, the officer of the picket was directed to form them up as fast as they came up, by twelves, and to forward them under the first officer or sergeant who should arrive. The whole regiment and the light infantry of the guards were soon on the march, and the enemy in the woods retreated, gaining better intelligence. Colonel Twistleton halted on the verge of it, till Major Gwynne, who had beaten back the enemy, returned. The next day it was known that Pulaski had commanded the army. A skirmish had happened on the day before, between the smaller parties, and he, supposing that a large patrol would be sent out from Philadelphia, 
obtained the command of, near, of a very strong one to ambush it. But, however, able and spirited he might be, he was soon convinced that his irregulars could not withstand the promptitude and strength of the British cavalry. Parties of the rangers every day went to Frankfurt, where the enemy no longer kept a fixed post, though they frequently sent a patrol to stop the market people. A patrolling party of rangers approached undiscovered so close to a rebel sentinel posted upon the bridge that it would have been easy to have killed him. A boy, whom he had just examined, was sent back to inform him of this, and to direct him immediately to quit his post that he should be shot. He ran off, and the whole party, on his arrival at the guard, fled with equal precipitation. Nor were there any more sentinels placed there, a matter of some consequence to the poor people of Philadelphia, as they were not prevented from getting their flower ground at the Frankfurt Mills. It was the object to instill into the men that their superiority lay in close fight, and in the use of the bayonet, in which the individual courage and the personal activity that characterized the British soldier can best display themselves. The whole corps being together on the Frankfurt Road, information was received that Pulaski with his cavalry was approaching, on each side of the wood of the road. For some distance, there was wood, and very high rails fenced it from the road. The march was not interrupted, and the following disposition was made to attack him. The light infantry in front were loaded, and occupied the whole space of the road. Captain Stevenson, who commanded it, was directed not to fire at one or two men who might advance, but, either on their firing or turning back, to give notice of his approach, and to follow at a brisk and steady rate, and to fire only on the main body when he came close to them. The eight battalion companies were formed about thirty feet from the light infantry, in close column by companies, their bayonets fixed and not loaded. They were instructed not to heed the enemy's horses, but to bayonet the men. The grenadiers in the Highland Company were in the rear, loaded. Should the direction be given to Captain Armstrong were that the grenadiers should cross the fence on the right, and that the Highlanders, those on the left, and secure the flanks. The men were so prepared and so cheerful that if an opportunity of rushing Pulaski's cavalry had offered, which by the winding of the road was probable, before they could be put into career, there remains no doubt upon the minds of those who were present but that it would have been a very honourable day for the rangers.'